In this episode, I interview Nikolai Morris, who's a strength and conditioning specialist at High Performance Sport New Zealand. The main topic of this podcast was strength and conditioning for swimmers, as swimming is quite a unique sport compared to most land-based sports. I chose Nikolai to be on this podcast because she's a current swimmer herself and also a strength and conditioning coach that has worked with a lot of swimmers. Some topics that we included on this podcast was just a general overview of her tips that she has for athletes or coaches when training for swimming, uh, if she trains swimmers any differently than land-based sports, the main focuses she has for swimmers, does she do anything different for the different strokes, how she trains the different types of swimmers with your sprint, your mid-distance, and distance swimmers, and then some common mistakes that she thinks a lot of people make when training for swimming with strength and conditioning, how she programs in-season versus off-season, and then finally, how she approaches taper with swimming. So whether you're a swimmer yourself or you work with swimming, this is a great episode to listen to. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date, evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Nikolai Morris, who is a strength conditioning specialist at High Performance Sport New Zealand. Uh, Nikolai has a background in swimming and has trained swimmers, uh, and is similar to my background with a background in swimming, and so I just feel like a lot of times people, strength and conditioning coaches, or even swimmers in general, don't really understand um, the best way to do strength and conditioning for swimming and this is so different than um, all the other sports and sometimes um, you'll get information from other ones but it's more about land-based or just a kind of a different setup so that's going to be our main topic today so really appreciate you being on Nikolai. Uh, if yeah. first you just want to introduce yourself have a little background uh, how you got into strength and conditioning your education and so on that'd be great. Firstly thanks for having me on I really appreciate it. Um, so my background I'm if you can tell by the accent, uh, from Australia. Um, I moved over to New Zealand last year. Um, my background, as Patrick said, was I was a swimmer um, all through my life. I was not the most talented swimmer, but absolutely loved it. It was my passion. Um, I had to be forced to take days off training. Um, and through the lack of talent, I did absolutely anything I could to try my best to to get any edge. So I was lucky a friend of mine told me about a private strength and conditioning company um, not far from me uh, when I was about 14 and started training with them. And that kind of introduced me to strength and conditioning and, and what it was about and continued training with them um, for a couple of years. And then when I finished school, I I always knew I was going to do something in sport and I reached out to the company and asked if I could intern with them. Um, it was actually the week before I started university, I started interning with them um, and then went through a bachelor of what was called human movements and is now called exercise science and worked with them for three or four years doing that, um, then interned at an AFL club. and finished my degree um, unfortunately not long after the GFC when there was a real lack of positions so I kind of went around and did anything I could so that involved anywhere from sports trainer work to massage to Pilates as well as coaching schools teams clubs 
so a real wide range of sports and different teams. Um, and in 2016, I um, got an opportunity with Sydney University um, Sport and Fitness in their high performance department, um, working full time with rugby and their elite swimming program in Sydney. So I moved down to Sydney and started there um, and worked there for four years, ending up uh, at the end of it working with six different sports, in, including um, swimming, rugby, water polo, sevens, uh, soccer, and I'm athletics. I think that's all of them. And worked there for four years and then got an amazing opportunity to move across to New Zealand to work with HPS and Z in the elite rowing um, program. So that's where I am at the moment. Awesome. Yeah. And a lot of experience from a lot of different sports. So <laughs> I think, it, like I said, it'll be interesting to talk about, see how you program if you do any different for swimming. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, just the first question, I guess, just a general overview. Do you have anything um, that you look at when going uh, program for swimming or for swimming athletes that's different than your typical land-based sport um, when, when mixed up with programming? Yeah, so I guess it's a yes and a no to that question. There are some elements of athletic development that, that are going to be the same no matter what. We're, we're trying to make resilient athletes um, and they're, they're humans first. So unfortunately, if you don't treat them, uh, even if they are water-based athletes, if they can't walk without running into things and hurting themselves. I know um, there was a hilarious article years ago on Ryan Lochte and the, I think there was about 10 injuries and that was severe injuries. Like he did his meniscus, I think it was, reaching for his phone in the back of a car. Um, simple things like that. So swimmers aren't known for their coordination uh, on land. <laughs> so making sure that they're resilient, that they're not just going to injure themselves walking downstairs is, is also important. Um, however, there are some key elements in swimming that, that I believe are, are quite different to your land-based sports. Um, a key for me, I, I quite like adding gymnastics components into swimming. Um, swimming uh, often is called dry land training rather than strength and conditioning for and it has been for many years and it's a hard name to shake but dry land training <laughs> from uh, back in the day used to be very calisthenics based and I think there is an element of calisthenic style work that is very beneficial for swimming it is about manipulating your body weight and large amounts of load doesn't always um, pay off like it does in in a gravity-based sport. So I really like adding, um, we, we did a lot of hanging work and a lot of gymnastics bar style or ring style work and um, adding things like handstands into my program um, for, for shoulder resilience ended up being a huge benefit. Um, so there's some of the ways that I change it. However, I still think um, there's a lot of crossover in things like squats, the the turn and the dive involve it. That in a hundred meter, no, fifty meter race, that's thirty percent of your swim. So if your start's not going to go well, if you have no power out of the blocks, if you can't jump or use force, 
you're going to lose a lot off that start. And that may not be as important for a 1,500-meter swimmer, but if you're a 51 or 200 swimmer, it's still enough of a importance that you need to get that right. And if you look at most of the top-class swimmers, they really do have that explosive, amazing start. And, yeah, we do. We did a lot of squat work, but it doesn't need to be ass to grass style squat it can be mm. a box squat it can be a quarter squat and it, you don't need to go all the way down to necessarily get that benefit however if i was working with developmental athletes i'd be teaching them that range just for whole body movement to be an athlete first a swimmer second and a well, sorry person first athlete second <laughs> swimmer third <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that um, I like the gymnastic component you talked about, and yeah, we'll definitely get about getting into talking about kind of the differences maybe for the different you know sprints, mids, and long distance yep. swimmers. Um, but uh, and and how you mentioned before, obviously you're going to be doing that normal stuff that you will do with every athlete. So kind of what percent or how much of the training would you do is is the gymnastics type more than just your regular strength conditioning building? You know, the resilient athlete, athlete as you said. Um. Again, d- it depends on where they are in their program. It would probably be oh, about 20% maybe. <laughs> I'm going to say 20%. That'll, that'll be <laughs> fine, um, including some, some general movements and gymnastic-style movements kind of have a crossover anyway. But, yeah, 20 30% um, was kind of being integrated into the program, um, really working on end-range strength being able to catch the catch position is is probably the most important part of most of the swimming strokes except for maybe breaststroke where where the kick kind of is key um which i could never master myself but <laughs> oh, it's oh breaststroke i'm telling you oh it's, it's a challenge um but yeah so a lot of end range work and being able to be strong through that whole range because if if you're only strong midway through that range, you're not going to actually be able to carry that over and transfer that over into that catch position where it is essential. Yeah, and and for the any SNCs listening or anyone that's listening that doesn't know, the catch is like that first part of your stroke that you take, um, in in any uh, any of the strokes. So that first bit when you're catching the water. Uh, do you do any sort of just regular, uh, not not necessarily gymnastics? Do you do any sort of um, regular exercises kind of for that and uh, just general weights or banded or anything like that to work on the catch or any other components that you uh, like to focus on for and again I know not necessarily sports specific as in this is exactly for this but in general that you like for swimming yeah there's there's a lot of like basic strength movements like um, the coach I previously worked with at Sydney Uni most recently um he loved a Turkish get-up, and I totally agree. A Turkish get-up for swimmers is a really great one for them. It's being able to hold that position that you need, be able to integrate the whole body, and the coordination element, as I said previously, is not the strongest for most swimmers. So that's that's really important as well, being able to hold those positions and coordinate your whole body, which, yeah, can challenge a few. But that's probably one of my favourite typical exercises that I guess you could semi-call end range strength as well. Um, we often 
would challenge a little further doing upside down kettlebell Turkish get-ups, which just added that stability element in the shoulder and being able to hold those long positions, which makes it fun for everyone, basically. Yeah. What would you say, uh, either just because the swimmers are trying to read up on or watch uh, how other people train or um, some sort of coach will program what what do you say the biggest thing that you see when people don't understand swimming um, is when they when they program for swimming or when athletes try and follow another sort of workout that isn't kind of uh, like as as you said you know you have yep. that general strength and the general stuff but maybe doing a little extra stuff that's probably not the best <laughs> the there's two main things i see that a lot of people do that don't have a background in swimming um the first is try and do the stroke while in a gym environment with bands or with dumbbells and it just won't work it it's not gravity that we're going against it's it's water so it moves in a different completely different way and if you start trying to do the stroke with a band or a dumbbell you generally end up actually messing with their stroke or giving them a lot of problems um so that's that's the most important one to me is you're not you can't be that specific it's got to be a little bit more general than that and then the second one that i see often is people just trying to go well this works with most athletes so it's going to work with swimmers and there's there's a level in swimming and um depending on who you've worked with and how old school your coaches are i've been lucky the um elite squads that i've taken have been very open-minded um they have a very good research background so then they're actually willing to look up research and question what's been done rather than just going this is the way things have been done um but the uh yeah the typical land-based exercises are not necessarily always going to work and just doing it um because it worked for a different athlete is not going to be the same you may get a little bit of payoff at the start again with general movement general coordination but yeah you're gonna have to change it up a little bit because yeah as i said most most of the old school swimming coaches in particular will really harp on about uh muscle bulk they don't want huge muscle bulk and it sounds a little bit weird if you've not been around swimming but there is a really big power to weight payoff and you don't want to be uh again it, it's a we'll i'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later between the um different sprint versus distance kind of swimmers but especially with your distance swimmers if you make them stiff and you make them feel heavy um, and they feel like they've got too much muscle bulk, it will actually restrict their fluidity in their stroke. Um, and I, old school coaches will generally take it a little bit too far. Um, however, there is, there is reason they do say it. There is a level of truth in what they say. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, again, we'll definitely probably talk about that in a second. But I want to go back to two good points you made. So um, I think with swimming too, when you're saying you can't, you can't just do it as every general land-based sport, um, I'd, I'd argue that most swimmers probably their coordination and learning lifts probably might take a little bit longer than the average definitely. general land, land-based sport one. So maybe, I don't know if there's anything more points you want to make on that. And then the second point is, uh, I think a major difference is from most sports, other than maybe like athletics or track and field, 
would be the fact that literally our sport is straight up conditioning. I mean, you'll have, you know, you, you have a little bit of technique work in there. But other than that, I mean, you know, when most teams will have, you know, they'll practice and they'll have conditioning for 10 minutes at the end. Now, four hours a day is just pretty much straight conditioning for practice. That is what we do. So, Swimming, I mean, athletics, this, rowing and cycling yeah. are the only or I guess triathlon, but there's three sports, so there's other factors. But, yeah, they're the main ones I can think of that are just purely cyclic sports mm. that you're not, you're not actually programming their fitness or conditioning or energy systems like you would in, in a typical team-based sport. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you, do you, so for that coordination aspect, is there anything specific or different you like to do or anyways, do you approach it any different than any other athlete or just maybe take a little bit more time um, when learning the lifts? And is that something that maybe you should, do you think should be obviously a priority for coaches and athletes? Yeah. Um, again, it, it, it depends on the athlete. I've had, I had a couple of swimmers, my very first swimming group at Sydney uni, um, my sprint group, they were athletes like, one of them, um, Tahomi Maxwell, actually, who broke a couple of Ian Thorpe's junior world records. One of them, well, the most athletic swimmer I've ever seen. Like, he would challenge land sport athletes on coordination and athletic ability. Just phenomenal athlete. Like, 90 centimeter vertical, could do 80 kilo one rep chin ups, like, just a beast. So someone like that, the coordination and the learning, nailed it, no problems. But with your, gen- with your general swimmers, especially at the developmental level, so I say developmental level as high school athletes, like some of them are competing and finaling, even meddling um, at open level or even on the world stage, but they're still developing athletes. They're, they're elite swimmers, but developing athletes. Um, and I think that's an important distinction they generally will take a lot more coordination. Um, sorry, a lot more time to learn things. Uh, I actually, swimming and rowing have a lot of parallels um, and it just makes me think of working in, in school level and like taking, taking a whole term to be able to actually just hinge, just do the hinge pattern with the broomstick, not, not anything else. And sometimes it will take that long. Um, and kind of earning the right to progress with swimming rather than just assuming this is an elite athlete, they're on the world stage, so they'll be just as good as my normal athletes on the world stage and I'll be able to progress them as such. You may need to treat them like their long-term athlete development, high school level athlete. Like you may not be able to put them on a squat. We, I think it took a year, a year and a half for most of my school-aged swimmers to get past a goblet squat onto a barbell, a barbell squat and they just weren't ready. They couldn't coordinate it. Their movements weren't good enough. And for me to progress them when they weren't ready was going to give them more problems than benefits. So, yeah, it, it depends on the level. You will have coordinated swimmers. They are rare, but you will have them. <laughs> you can progress them a little quicker, whereas your typical swimmer, um, and they kind of fall I believe in two categories. You get the swimmers who can run or do stuff on land um, and then your pure swimmers who kind of never should leave the water and will injure themselves literally doing anything. Um, so you've just got to be aware of kind of where they fall into which category and then treat them as such and, yeah, make sure that they 
they actually aren't just being progressed for the sake of progression. They're being progressed because they're ready for it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, yeah, obviously it's going to differ a little bit depending on <laughs> the athlete. But it, but in general, yeah, I'd say there's definitely a um, commonality that swimmers probably aren't the most coordinated out there. Yeah, um, and I feel I feel like I can say that because I'm a swimmer um, myself. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, no. My coordination Same. isn't isn't fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Don't um, ever ask me it, to hit a ball. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess let's kind of go into maybe talking a little bit about. Um, how uh, or like convincing coaches so as as you were saying before like some are kind of like hesitant on it so what is the importance of strength conditioning in swimming as if you know swimming is the sport swimming is what they do why do they need to do strength and conditioning and then we can kind of move into how the um, distance mid-distance sprinters and the variance in between that so first off kind of you know why is it important how do you convince coaches and athletes that you need to do more than just swim back and forth and work on and all that stuff and you need to actually do something out of the water um, again, I, I've been really lucky with the swimming groups that I've worked in. The, coach had, the coaches had essentially bought in. So that makes life a thousand times easier. However, there are a lot of swimming coaches, and I know a lot and I've spoken to a lot as both a swimmer and a coach around this. And, and there is a lot of old school theories. And um, unfortunately, swimming is often very embedded in the old school mentality when and they just they're they're dry land so just doing billions of sit-ups and push-ups and stuff on the side of the pool that's good enough stretch cords done that's enough however however you kind of need to talk to them um swimming coaches tend to be a bit wary of i guess people who don't have a swimming background they it's a very um and i don't think this is a good thing the people from different backgrounds in different sports bring such great ideas that that people who have been embedded in this sport their whole life just won't see but they need to go in and aim to understand the sport first ask the coach questions listen to them see their pain points is it half their swimmers are missing time in their water in the water or not able to do anything but kick because half their swimmers are spending two months out each season with shoulder issues if that's the case that's a great angle to go in with okay let's look at making those shoulders resilient if we can get them in the gym this is how we'll work through it we'll work on decreasing that time out of the water and that's that's the big thing with swimming coaches they never want anything to take time out of the water for them so making sure that you don't come at it as, oh, let's just replace a swimming session with a weight session. Um, again, if you've got a good enough relationship with the coach, that may eventually be something you can do, but definitely not the, the way to initially attack. You've really got to make sure that, yeah, you listen to them, see what their struggles are. Are they getting owned off the dive or the turns? Are people just accelerating away from them? Then use what you know, okay, we can do squats or we can do jumps and we can do X, Y, Z that's going to increase the force production. And if a diver is counted as 30% of, of your 50-meter race, that's a 30% we can really attack and, and make better. So, yeah, I think the key is just listening to the pain points of the coach, trying to understand swimming. It's a weird sport, um, but just listening, I, I know with any sport especially the ones I'm new to 
just going and watching a training session, going and asking questions with the coach is the most invaluable thing you can do. And you learn so much. You be able to, you're able to then see why they say these things like they're not being fluid in the water. If you watch a good swimmer, you and I'm talking 200 up um, sprinters, you probably can't see it as easy, but you just see what they mean by fluidity in the water. They just glide. Um, something as a sprinter that I don't do like that, but they they're just so beautiful in the water, and you can see why the coaches and the athletes speak in these terms, and that goes a long way. Yeah, definitely. Just trying to find um, ways to you know improve upon. I guess swimming out of the water that you don't necessarily need to do in the water, especially, I think even, even I found, or I liked the fact that, you know, it was something different, you know, it was out of the water, it wasn't swimming, you know, you're already swimming hours upon end, you know, doing something a little bit different that's still trying to help benefit you in your main sport is going to be, you know, beneficial. Absolutely. Now I guess to the main one that a lot of people talk about, do you, or how do you um, program differently for that sprinter mid distance <laughs> and long distance strokes whatever you know if you do anything different for strokes or anything like that yeah so my I guess overall scaffolding of a program is similar um, however there's definitely well, at least working within the strokes however as they um, there are different exercises and different focuses so um, with my last swimming squad, the we we actually didn't have many breaststrokers, but the breaststrokers and the butterflies, their key injuries outside of your well, breaststrokers' key injury is back, which is interesting. They they need um, stronger adductors than well, none of the other strokes really use the adductors so much. Um, so integrating little elements in there. Um, in terms of uh, sprint versus mid versus distance, if you've got a pure, pure distance swimmer, like 1,500 open water. So um, I had a great swimmer, oh, unbelievably beautiful swimmer um, at Sydney Uni called Cormac, and he was a 10K open water swimmer. I'm going to program him a little differently because he is not doing the same stuff in the pool. Like there's no dive element really in a 10 K it's not going to make, it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to be 30% anymore. Um, definitely less. Um, so he, he did a little bit more cross training and it depended on what he did in the water. So if he got all his sessions in that week, maybe we could do a little bit more strength and um we started initially building up his strength and he was he's quite a good athlete so he ended up being able to build his strength quite well so once we got to a level of necessary strength we started moving more into integrated little bit more strength endurance based programming a little bit higher reps an element of circuit based training in there not every session um but also with that focus on strength when we could. So we're periodizing it in and out. Whereas mm. um, in that same group, we had a pure 50-meter sprinter. So he, he hated anything other than 50 meters, which I totally relate to. <laughs> so he, um, myself, uh, Tom and the coach basically had a chat and instead of doing 
three swimming sessions or two, sorry, three strength and conditioning or two strength and conditioning sessions, he actually took out swimming sessions and used gym instead because it was a higher percentage that transferred for him being stronger than doing an extra aerobic session in the water, which is what it would have been. So he could focus more on that strength power element. And we really mm-hmm. worked hard on, on that producing force and producing force quickly for him was essential. And also, again, those end range strength qualities. Uh, your mid-distance, so 2-4 is technically mid-distance, but 1-2 and 4 swimmers, you, you're essentially on a continuum. They're your typical swimmers. They're going to be about 80% to 90% of the swimmers you work with. That's what you would call a typical swimmer. Um, and really, again, the, the strength power side is important but that's phased in and you can add in some strength endurance as well. So they kind of sit in the middle of both these extremes from your 10K to your 50. And they're going to be what your general program is. And then you have to change it for, for these outliers. Um, but yeah, the, the, other than that, it's just working around the individual athletes. So I had an athlete who had, Um, was coming back from a serious leg injury. So he had, and he was a backstroker. Um, For those who don't know, backstroke and breaststroke are your more leg dominant strokes. Freestyle and fly are more upper body dominant. So your your kick is important in every stroke, but it kind of phases that way. And um, being a backstroker, being a leg driven stroke and having one leg that was severely atrophied, we had to do a lot more lower body than maybe some of the other uh athletes um and then no matter which swimmer you've got your key exercise and um i always believe this in swimming your key exercise is always going to be chin-ups you have to have chin-ups and some variation in your program if you can if you can um if you have to do a lap pull down because they're not able to do chin-ups to build up to it that's fine but especially as a sprinter. Um, I think there's there's a really large correlation. Uh, they did a study, and I haven't read it for a little while now, so bear with me, but it's something around your... I think it was 100, it could have been 50, but in your, in your women's Olympic final of your sprinters, they had to be doing close to body weight for a 1RM chin-up, as in, oh, sorry, 30% of body weight, I think it was, 30 to 50% of body weight um, to be correlated to make that final. Uh, And I know someone like Kate Campbell does around, I think it's like a 50 kilo one rep chin-up. Like, that's huge. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely, especially with the sprinters, there's a correlation between one rep weighted chin-up and speed, but chin-ups in general are, are always going to be a staple of every swimming program that I've ever run. Yeah, it's a good summary of kind of the three, you know, relatively, you know, differences. And obviously you're going to have, it's a big spectrum and everyone's going to be different <laughs> depending on everything. Um, but, and that's a good point you made too. So, what I feel like a lot of coaches too, or a lot of people, athletes in general, will talk about having muscular endurance, and that's the main point of 
you know, swimming, like, oh, you just need muscular endurance, but you did talk about making sure you have power and strength as well. So what do you say to someone or an athlete, except a coach, anyone that's just like, well, why, why aren't you just training muscular endurance, high reps, you know, it's swimming, it's repetitive, there's stroke and stroke and stroke. Why, why are you doing, you know, like one RM chin ups or really heavy, you know, squats or power cleans or whatever? Uh, the key thing I would say to them is we're not training in the gym to essentially get the specificity of swimming. We're doing the things that they're not getting in the pool. They, most swimmers will train 10, 11 times a week for swimming, at least. Well, most of the time. Uh, so they're already getting 10, 11 sets of strength, strength, in, uh, sorry, strength endurance aerobic work. So if you're going to just give them more and more endurance firstly they're going to be limited in their strength and power which would limit their ability to improve that strength endurance and also you're just going to fatigue them it's just going to be an added fatigue for them and they're not going to be able to recover so i believe in training the qualities that they're not necessarily getting in the pool so they will get transfer and they'll be able to use that strength endurance and that aerobic quality to a higher standard so that would be the key thing for me is just, yeah, training what they're not getting the thing, but also still going to transfer and get better from. Yeah. It, one thing I was, I can't remember exactly where I was listening. Someone else, I think it, it might've been a high performance manager for USA swimming. I can't exactly remember who it was, but they talked about, um, when they're training sprinters, they're already high CNS, CNS central nervous system because they are sprinting and sprinting and sprinting. Yeah. Uh, and practices a lot. So do you do anything different for them in general, whereas you don't maybe perform as many of those really low rep or power exercises and you do a little bit more, more hypertrophy side side of things. And then the opposite with endurance as in they are, or even the mid to endurance where they're doing a lot more, I guess, yardage. So instead of performing um, kind of that volume on top of volume, you maybe do a little bit more of the opposite. Cause so is that kind of what you're saying there? Whereas you kind of do things that they're not getting in the pool. Uh, yes and no. Um, for that one, I actually like to think of it like a hundred meter sprinter in, in on a track. You wouldn't go a hundred meter track sprinter is doing heaps of CNS work. So when they're in the gym, let's let's get them on the strength endurance side of things. Mm. Maybe for a hundred meter swimmer, you would look at adding those endurance qualities in sometimes. Again, phasing it in. However, if you've got a fifty meter swimmer the high levels of strength endurance don't play a huge role. You would be obviously periodizing it with the swimming coach and making sure that it's aligned so they're not blowing up their CNS and all they're doing is is just power speed the whole time and getting no recovery, making sure that they're actually able to recover so they're doing quality. Um, And then, yeah, if if you need some form of muscular endurance or strength endurance at any time because they're not able to hold body position or hold the catch that would be done with more their accessory work rather than their key lifts so yeah i i wouldn't go stupidly high and probably for for a 50 meter swimmer i think it would be rare to ever go to like an eight rep maybe if they're coming back from from holidays and they need a bit of a, a base but yeah usually staying below six and below um and working on their actual strength rather than their endurance 
Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So here's one too. So do you do anything different for um, if you have a like a mixed team? Mm-hmm. Um, do you do anything different for females versus males at all, or the exact same program? Uh, n- yes and no. Again, scaffolding is similar, but and and it depends on on the women you've got. So in my previous squad, uh, we had one four hundred meter swimmer for eight she's distant swimmer um naturally strength wasn't her thing she was had a lower training age in the gym than most others however i also had a female breaststroker who was a great athlete um very strong very powerful however either way um i did I did have elements of differences between the men and female but that was mostly on the fact that they had different elements needed. So whether it be training age, um, the distance from Sarah wasn't naturally as strong. She was your typical, very tall, very lanky swimmer, um, had trouble coordinating her body, a little bit of a, a baby giraffe um, when we first started. Um, couldn't do a chin-up initially, but progressing her on um doing lifts that she was comfortable with and could feel the benefit and could make continuous improvement she made massive difference was actually able to do chin-ups by the end which is so great and was lifting just as just as well technically as the guys by the end which was fantastic um Krita, the the athlete she she actually did have a program that was more similar to some of the guys because her strength qualities were very similar um, and she needed that extra power and that extra uh, complexity because she was had, had been strength training for longer. So I wouldn't say that there's a huge difference. I think there is more difference on, I guess, the the quality of the athlete and the training age of the athlete versus that male-female. It's usually not so much male-female, it's it's strong or weak is kind of where mm. I'd look at it. Yeah, so more of an in, just having, a, as you said, the general scaffolding, but then you having the individualizing each program a little bit dependent yeah. upon the athlete, not really more as male or female, just the, the history and the background on the athlete. Um, with swimming, <clears throat> it is a sport that... You know, especially in and with, with other sports, you know, you want to be ready for games. You want to be rested, ready to play because you want to win games. Where swimming is, most of the time, the coaches want them absolutely roasted for every possible meet except championship, like their championship meet. So, what? Um, how do you kind of go about that? Especially, especially when it gets really tough. When swimming obviously is the main priority, and lifting is kind of complementing that. Um, where they're getting absolutely roasted in the pool, and they come into you, and you're still supposed to push them. But where do you kind of draw that line or how do you kind of go about that? And then kind of after we get through the season, we'll talk about how do you how do you program for taper? I actually have had two different experiences with that. Um, in the last program, we had a lot of athletes, but they still needed to make some qualifying times. So we actually had to, I guess, have minor peaks a lot more than you usually would have to. So rather than just having that big championship meet, as you would expect if your your goal you're actually going to medal or make the Olympic team and, and things like that. You're actually able to blow through all these minor meets 
being under that heavy fatigue. Um, my previous coach I worked with actually preferred... Uh, I do actually find this quite common um, where they may be blasting them in the pool but they still want the strength element or the S&C side of things to be backed off before the meets. They never want the athletes to feel that heavy. They just want them to be fatigued from the pool. Um, whereas, yeah, my the coach prior to that was a little... We had a lot of athletes that were potentially... Um, there were national finalists, borderline um, Olympic qualifiers. So we did do strength training straight through and we were properly peaking for that Olympic trial meet rather than having a back off for state championships or anything like that. Um, sadly, I was only... Uh, we only had a short campaign, so I started with them in January in 2016 and the Olympic trials were at the end of April, I'm pretty sure, or start of May. <laughs> so there wasn't a huge amount of time to be able to um, blow through meets, so that was only a, a four-month block. Uh, so we were able to really work on those strength qualities and um, these guys were a high enough level that they could get through state championships, still swim decently well, um, and really have a proper peak for the national championships to get their actual pure benefit. Um, most of the lead-up meets um, for that kind of level athlete, they're important more to just judge your pacing and your timing and your getting that, uh, I guess, race fit quality, working on your technical elements like your dives and, and your starts and your pacing. So being fatigued through them wasn't too much of an issue. Um, they weren't trying to do a PB necessarily at those meets um, and it allowed them to really properly peak um, at national champs. And I think we had, uh, I think, 80 eight or eighty nine percent of races that they competed in at the national champs were PBs. So we we're lucky that, that that actually that peak really worked. Um whereas if you have a bunch of mini peaks you may have that trade off period mm -hmm. where you may not be able to really work through all the qualities you need. You may not be able to have a proper strength block because you're always having to back off and, and get them fresh. So Again, it depends on the level of athlete. I love everything in SNC. It depends, it depends, it depends, but it really does depend on uh, mm -hmm. where your goal is. So, yeah, you've kind of got to talk to your coach, have that really good communication and understand when and why they want to peak. And, um, yeah, if, if the minor meets are really important to the athlete, there needs to be a conversation to the coach about potentially backing off and under, or understanding and explain to the athlete why you're not. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, definitely dependent. And, yeah, <laughs> and if yeah, if you were trying to make your, make the smaller times, you know, you want to, or the smaller meets, you still want to make sure they're ready for those as well. Yeah. Um, so it is, yeah, just kind of managing that. That's probably a good thing to say. Just kind of managing it individually and communicating with coaches and the athlete in general. But, I guess one big thing that maybe a lot of times 
um, is kind of it's different. Every coach, like swim coach, every strength coach, um, is is that taper period. So, I know this is like a really challenging question, but is is there what what are your principles or how do you look upon taper when it comes to that uh, with strength conditioning? Uh, and then the coach is obviously probably going to have their own thing a little bit as well with how much they want lifting or whatever. But do you have anything that you specifically try and make sure you do? And like, how many weeks off do you start? Do you tape? Do you decrease volume and keep the intensity high or so on? Like, how do you like to do it? Yep. Um, I like to build into the intensity and then, uh, I really liked the, the approach we had in, um, my last squad where it was very individual in terms of leading up to a meet. So our distance swimmers didn't really get a chance. It was, they had absolutely no gym the week before. Uh, they, the fatigue was just too much for a distance swimmer to be doing gym into uh into a big meet whereas the sprinters got a bit of an option some of them felt better lifting close to meets some just wanted to do a bit of prehab a bit of lightweight stuff the week before <clears throat> sorry uh the pure sprinter we did a little bit of maybe some power maybe some jumps uh, squat jumps or box jumps but not doing huge amount of load the huge amount of load didn't necessarily suit everyone. It, it's not like uh, a land-based athlete where you can lift on the day. You will have ramifications. Um, but, yeah, it was a very much we – we were lucky. We had a lot of meets, so they were able to kind of test and adapt to where they felt better. Um, some lifted fully on the Tuesday – Beard just did a little bit of power stuff on the Thursday and then raced on the Saturday and that worked for them. Um, I know for myself swimming, I have no issue lifting two days out, um, but I will try and focus on power style. But again, I'm a sprinter, so having a little bit of fatigue isn't really going to be an issue, um, but I really want to, to really have that CNS firing, feel like I'm powerful and, and ready to go. So, yeah, uh, I think that's a big difference between you have that big spectrum between the sprinters and the distance swimmers. Um, but, yeah, for the distance swimmers, I definitely, the week before a big comp, just prehab work, really, just mobility and prehab, getting the body feeling good. Yeah, and, and especially I think if you're not familiar with swimming, I think a big thing, too, it's just dependent on how the swimmer feels. Some people, like, I know some people don't like to miss a day, even if they just jump in and do you know 10 to 15 minutes they don't like to miss a day of in the water because i even like i mean from personal experience if i was <laughs> swimming and i didn't swim in taper like i didn't swim on a yeah. sunday or, and then i even felt terrible the next day so it's just even just doing it for 10 minutes a day um and it's, sometimes if you have a longer weekend so off strange, like a saturday eh? sunday yeah even if you're mid I, like middle <laughs> of season you have saturday sunday off and then you're like i feel like i haven't swam in eight years on monday it's crazy I um, um I was mental on this growing up. I used to get so in my head. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my feel of the water. I've had two <laughs> days off. Like, my life is ending. Now I don't swim that much. And you still have, again, that it, that's a um, phrase for non-swimming-based SNCs. You need to learn feel of the water. Uh, it's mm -hmm. a weird thing that all swimmers say and understand, and there is a difference. There is thick water and thin water and fast water and slow pools, and it, mm -hmm. it it's not all in our head. There is It is real, I swear. 
but yeah the um the feel of the water is such a thing we get in our head about it's mm-hmm. it's such an interesting one yeah yeah so definitely just making that kind of taper individualized to making them feel as comfortable as possible is probably number one yeah. Um, I guess last question here, uh, you can kind of have a combination if you want. And you talked a little bit mm-hmm. about it before with the gymnastics, but do you do anything to try and help reduce injuries in, in any of the strokes? You talked a little bit about back and the breaststroke and obviously shoulders in general for, sw- for swimming. Um, so anything you do to in- reduce injury risk and then anything you do for the kind of that recovery, uh, if you do anything specifically for swimming? So in terms of injury risk, again, it's it's looking at a needs analysis of both your individual swimmers and the stroke and swimming as a whole. So the most common injury by um, a thousand is is always going to be shoulders and swimming. Um, it's a cyclic motion. You're doing up to, I think it's 10,000 internal rotations in a session. It's something ridiculous. So that's going to cause issues. Um, and again, even if you've got a breaststroker, they're going to do a lot of freestyle. They're not just going to do breaststroke. Um, freestyle is is a key. No matter what stroke you do, you're going to do a lot of freestyle. Uh, so injury risk is so important and resilient shoulders is so important. And like I said before, I this is one way I really use the gymnastics style. So um, I do a lot of hanging work. So if you've got a swimmer and they can't hang on a bar, just passively double arm hanging, like 30 to 60 seconds if that's giving them pain and problems already where we there's big issue um i want to get my swimmers the ability to be able to single arm hang on a bar comfortably in a good shoulder position making sure their scapula is moving well um your banded internal external dumbbell internal external they'll do that that physios will have given them that for years but that's not that's just reacting it's not preventing anything really so you've got to actually take it into that end range so using ring work and using hanging work and handstand work and being getting the swimmers to actually feel how their shoulder needs to move rather than just expecting lifting to do it for them um Mm -hmm. i personally I love handstand work as well for shoulders because if you're in a handstand, you have to lock your shoulders properly. Like, it doesn't really give you much of an option not to. Um, another one for swimmers that that will cause some injuries is if they don't have high levels of thoracic mobility. Swimming is a very rotational sport. As I said, even if you're not uh, free back, if you're um, breast or fly, you're still going to do a lot of freestyle, so you still need to be able to rotate well. Um, and not being able to rotate well is going to give, or even in in fly, if your thoracic rotation, uh, sorry, your thoracic mobility isn't good, you're going to struggle to get your shoulders out of the water well and be able to breathe, be able to be in the position to breathe, and that um, without that thoracic mobility. So there their keys in pretty much every single program is some form of end range shoulder work. There's um, every single swimming program I think I've ever done has some form of shoulder prehab and then (laughs) some form of thoracic mobility. They're just Mm -hmm. keys. Um, Yeah. The 
breaststroke is I'll usually have some form of a doctor work, uh, quite often Copenhagen style, uh, a doctor work um, for them trying to, yeah, make sure that their, their movement is good. They're able to actually, I hate using this phrase, but use their glutes effectively. Um, mm-hmm. Being that breaststrokers will get back pain. Um, mm-hmm. So adding things like hip thrust into breaststrokers and butterflies is quite a common exercise I use. Um, as well as maybe some prehab glute work, like your clams or, or you just for them to feel it more than anything. They don't, their feeling is different to a land athlete. They don't, it, it's hard for swimmers sometimes to understand the difference but to, and how to use it on land. So being able to um, get a little bit of activation before they lift so they feel it, so then they can try and feel it uh, in the positions when they squat or whatnot um, is beneficial. I, again, don't use that much uh, in your land base because they actually generally do know how to feel it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, just just being aware of um, how they're feeling. So talking to your athletes, talking to the coaches, um, if they've had previous shoulder injury, if they're feeling a bit niggling in their shoulder, not to push it. Overhead work is important. Um, However, it can be a real problem for a lot of swimmers. I used a lot more uh, landmine style overhead press rather than your typical military press style work for them because it just is a much nicer position for the shoulder. It gives a lot less pain. So working out your trade-off, if you're going to give them a bit of shoulder impingement that's going to put them out of swimming is it worth it so just finding that that trade-off um in terms of recovery uh it's hard because it depends on if you are with the team at the meets or not Mm -hmm. and if you see that like how integrated you are within the team like some sncs will literally only see the swimmers when they're in the gym some will have a little bit more time into um, watching the pool or they'll travel with them to comps. Um, it's, again, a very personal preference. Personally, I'm, I think, one of the few swimmers. I like ice bathing for swimming. I like ice bathing even in between back-to-back events. I find that beneficial, which goes in the face of all science. So I'm <laughs> pretty sure it's placebo, but seems to work. Um, but most swimmers won't necessarily have access or love that. Um, and it's not like you've got a change room with an ice bath in it. It's Mm -hmm. not so easy to do. Most swimmers will just do their usual stretch foam roll trigger point, um, as their natural recovery. Um, but it's more about educating them on different types of recovery and getting them to find and trial what one works for them. Some like compression garments, um, which works for them, which is great. Uh, but I think the key with any of the recovery strategies um, is always the nutrition side, which some swimmers are awesome with. They'll have food with them no matter what. Uh, swimmers are massive eaters. <laughs> <laughs> but 
they won't always have food for it. So our swimmers used to go from swimming to the gym. They'd have like 40 minutes to an hour between the sessions and some wouldn't always eat breakfast between. Like they mm-hmm. have to have to get into that that pattern of being able to eat within that 30-minute gap, be it swimming or weights. Um, mm-hmm. And then the key, which I don't actually know many swimmers who struggle with this, but it is absolute the number one key for recovery is sleep. But swimmers do seem to be world-class sleepers. I haven't met many swimmers who struggle with it, but... <laughs> It is still an education one and working with development development athletes, cueing them about eight hours sleep and the injury risk if they're not getting at least eight hours is huge, Uh, especially, especially the, I guess, lower level swimmer, the earlier you train. So Mm -hmm. uh, if you've got school beforehand, you're going to be training at like 5, 5.30 in the morning. So getting eight hours is hard but you've got to just get into the habit of, of waking up, uh, going to bed, going to bed earlier, set an alarm on your phone for, uh, yeah, set an alarm to go to sleep, not just to get up and Mm. making sure that you're not staying up late for things that you wouldn't get up early for is kind of how I would phrase it. Yeah. I think that's important. Like you said, initially with the needs analysis of trying to figure out, um, what injuries are common and then trying to work upon strengthening, to try and reduce risk as much as possible. And then, yeah, just the basics of nutrition and sleep are probably obviously the biggest things that are going to be the biggest things you're going to have to focus on. And But, yeah, with swimming, yeah, it's kind of dependent on the athlete. But, yeah, usually <laughs> sleeping, definitely. Nutrition's, you know, 50-50 maybe. But, yeah. Anyways, well, thank you very much for being on. Um, if you want to uh, just shout out kind of where people can follow you, because I know you share some stuff um, on Instagram and if you yep. have any other type of um, social medias or anything, and I'll put those in the show notes afterwards as well. Awesome. So, um, yeah, Instagram is probably what I use the most, but I have Twitter um, as well, and they're both at Nikolai underscore Morris. Um, and, yeah, you can shout out to me um, for any questions. I'm Yeah, I'll, I'll be able to answer, hopefully. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on. Really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick-wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.